0: This morning we're going to talk about the resurrection. I'm going to give you a framework of the resurrection and how people respond to the resurrection out of the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. It's a story of Paul's journeys and places titled Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. In Acts 17 it says this, Paul went to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you he is the Christ the anointed one Messiah the king And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So Paul had to escape with his life. He goes 50 miles down the coast to a place called Berea. Now, Berea, they examined the scripture and received the word because they were noble-hearted. And then the same group of rabble-rousers follow them to Berea, and they stir up the people once again. And so, Paul has to flee for his life. He gets on a ship, and he sails south to a city called Athens. And he goes to Athens. And while he's there, it says he goes in, and he disputes, debates, he reasons with them about the Christ. I'll pick up the text in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked, which means to made uneasy or stirred deeply within him. As he saw that the city was full of idols, all type of idols to every god, goddess known to man. Paul, of course, believed there was no god but one, his name was Jehovah, Trinitarian in glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and he took him aside, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for for you bring some strange things to our ears. Now, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something that was new. So they said, Paul's a a babbler. He's saying things that are nonsensical. He's talking about the resurrection of the body from the dead. He just goes on endless strings of of nothingness. He's a babbler. And so they took him aside and said, tell us what you are talking about. And this is what it says. It says that Paul reasoned, verse 7, he reasoned, which means to rationally talk to someone. He reasoned in the synagogue, proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. So it was, it was a rational discourse, and they said, he said, he reasoned with them about Jesus and the resurrection. Today, all over the world, where churches gather, this passage will be read. First Corinthians fifteen. Let me just read a few verses here. The apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom were still alive so it says this Christ." Appeared to 500 men at one time. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to me. A real resurrected body you could see and touch. A resurrected body that ate fish. And then he says this regarding the application of the resurrection. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised there, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Paul says, if, if Christ be not risen from the dead, our preaching is vain. Your faith is in vain. We're misrepresenting the living God. Our message is nothing more than hocus-pocus and, and, and imagination. He says, but if Christ has risen from the dead, then we have hope. But if not, we have no hope. And so we proclaim this morning the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the dead. He is risen. Now, if you were to go to a vast, interesting city named Calcutta, India, East India, population 16 to 18 million people. There is a temple there named the Temple of Kali. Kali is a Hindu deity, the goddess of creation and destruction. And it's a focal point in the city, and it's a large temple, and many people go there, many earnest people. And if you ask the priests that are there every day, give you sacrifices, tell us about the Temple of Kali. They said, well, many, many years ago, there was a God named Shiva, and he had a lover named Satu. And And, and, and Satu died, and Shiva held her, and he grieved over her. Then he put her down, and he did a death dance around her as he grieved. And as he did that, her, her body basically was dead dismembered and it fell to the earth in 51 to 100 places and and including mostly India but Bangladesh Nepal Pakistan Sri Lanka and at these places where the body fell we have built temples or holy pilgrimage sites so so this temple is where her right toes fell here in Calcutta Calcutta so wow that's quite a story And, and then if you pulled them aside and you said to them you know Do You really believe that Sati, the consort of Shiva, died and her dismembered body fell to the earth? And you really believe her right toes fell here? No, we said, well, no, we, we don't really believe that. But we believe it's a very helpful myth that holds in a cohesive fashion the thought of Hinduism together. Because myth or truth, it's not a big deal. It's just what you experience, what you believe. That's one million miles from New Testament theology. Paul says with unmistakable clarity, if Jesus is not bodily risen from the dead, our preaching is futile. Your faith is futile. We are misrepresenting the living God if we're only to live for Jesus in this life and we have no hope for the resurrection, pity us. Pity us. But it says, but Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. So, so he, he goes to this place called the Areopagus in Greece. And he reasons with them and he preaches the resurrection. And there are three groups of people there. Basically, Representing broad spectrum of people still here today in our culture. They are noble hearted. They're gracious. They're searchers. They're there to listen and talk and discuss. And the Bible refers to them as Epicureans and Stoics. And then he says those who were there to spend their time talking about the latest fads and isms that came down the pike. So you had Epicureans, you had Stoics, and then the fattest. And they're, they're to, here today, they're Epicureans. They're Stoics, and they're fattest. Epicureans today in our culture, an Epicurean is somebody that can go to a, a, a party and taste cheese and tell you if it's from France or Belgium or where shells. You know, they, they can taste cheese. Or they can, they can taste wine and say, oh, yes, this is whatever they do that. So they're, 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 they have a very heightened palate. But in the day of Christ, an Epicurean was someone who believed that life was good, but it had limited results, and the best thing you can do is just to enjoy life in a limited fashion and not expect too much. They believed that once you died, you ceased to exist. In fact, one of their leading Epicureans said this. Epicurus said, of, of all the means which wisdom acquires to ensure happiness throughout the whole of life, by far the most important is Friendship. They said, you know, enjoy life in the context of community. So I know a lot of people that are Epicureans, they're kind, they're gracious, they they realize that they're not going to do everything they want and they embrace life in the context of community. That's a good neighbor in many ways. The the Stoics, on the other hand, were people who believed that that life was tough and, and and then you die. So one of the leading Stoics said this, Epictetus, he said, life is hard, Brutal, punishing, and confining. It is a deadly business. He applied to work at Hallmark Cards and was turned down. You know, really, life is tough. But the Stoics believed that when you died, your soul survived, that your soul went to a place of the afterlife. But they had no Neither one of these people had any concept of the resurrection of the physical body in the new heavens and new earth, a real body with real task and real joy and real feasting. No concept. So what Paul is saying to them and the fattest, all three groups, outside of their paradigm, no idea what you're talking about. A physical body, Paul? You're a babbler. A physical body that has projects and glory and feasting and worship, Paul, you're a babbler. But for those who understand the glory of the gospel of Christ It's hope. Oh, it's hope. Those who understand they live in a fallen world, we can say of the Apostle Paul, the outward man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. I recently saw a mini-series from Australia. There's a picture of the real women. It's called the Anzac Girls. I highly recommend it. It's really good. It takes place in World War I. It helps you understand the Gallipoli campaign and the horror of France and that Horrible war, but these are, are young women who go to the front and they are highly decorated, and they are women of incredible valor and courage. It's based upon true stories, several we trace several women's life, and one of them, the star of the show, is a woman named Alice Ross King, and she meets a man named Harry Moffat, who's in the Australian Army, a young, dashing, handsome guy. They fall in love, they get engaged, and as they sit in a cafe in Egypt before he's shipped over to Turkey in the Gallipoli campaign. She says something about God, and he says, Well, I don't, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. I believe in, in heroism and bravery and just causes, but I do not believe in God. He says, Really? Yeah. Of course, the question we would ask if we were having a debate is Who gave you the concept of justness or heroism? Where did that come from anyway? I don't believe in God. So he goes to the front. He's killed in action. She spends the next two years after his death, as the show ends, grieving his passing. And so in November 1918, when the war comes to an end, it shows people dancing in the streets of Paris. And she's standing over in a corner by herself. And one of her friends says, don't you want to dance? She says, no. And she says, hasn't God been good to us? And here's why she says, she says, "I, I don't believe in God. I believe in valor and heroism and kindness, but I do not believe in God. That's the Stoic. That's the Stoic. You you believe in categories and doing the right thing, but you don't believe in God. The afterlife is a dim, undefinable mystery of nothingness. The Epicureans, nothing. The fattest, the latest idea. And, And so into this context, Paul speaks to these noble hearted people. And he says, You know, there's so much about why you believe this right. Life is limited. You see, but there's hope beyond the grave because of who Jesus is the resurrection of the body. See, some people cannot live with a, in a land with limited, diminishing returns. I was interested this week in the Wall Street Journal, front page on Monday, there was an article about a man named Charles Murray. And it's the, the article was entitled, uh, "The Death of a, of a Millionaire." Charles Murray's six foot six, uh, incredibly gifted and successful, a millionaire many, many times over. His best friend was a, a billionaire, invested his money, married with three children, wonderful wife. It says this, this is Mr. Murray. Made several million dollars a year at Paulson. A person close to the matter said his compensation had been rising in recent years, though the firm performance had been poorly as of late. People around him said that Mr. Murray worried about his money and supporting the lavish lifestyle of his wife and three boys. He had a $12 million mortgage on his Upper East Side home that he just put on the market for $37 million. Two of the youngest children attended private schools, and two more from his first marriage were in college. Early in 2016, he put his townhouse on the market. And as he did that, his wife was afraid he was dealing with depression, so he went to see a psychiatrist, and he was dealing with that. And then two weeks ago, they went on a ski vacation in Vail, Colorado. Our friend, staying at the same resort, reported... Finally, the sight of Mr. Murphy with his six-foot-six frame guiding one of his sons down the bunny slope, the father's long legs stretched against the boy's skis. Find home on Sunday, March 26th. Miss Murphy told a friend that her husband had, quote, a great week and the holidays were fabulous for us, close quote. The next day, Mr. Murphy sat down for breakfast with his wife and children. As he left for work, the nanny took notice of Mr. Murphy's suit and crisp shirt. She said, Mr. Murphy... You look good. He said, I feel great. That morning, Mr. Murphy worked in the Midtown Manhattan office. Later that day, he went to the Sofitel New York Hotel a few blocks away, checked into a room, and jumped from the 24th floor. Not able to handle diminishing returns. What do you do? Well, Paul talks about the reality of the Lord. Let me just frame the argument. He talks about the creator God. He talks about man made in the image of God who has dignity. He talks about the fact that in this living God, your life holds together. And then he talks about the resurrection. Verse 24. He says this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he says, God is everywhere present. He's not in the temple. He's everywhere. And then he says this. He has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, you know, your, your poet says, in him we live and move and have our being a precursor to what Paul was saying in Colossians 1, that that in Christ all things hold together. He says, God's a great creator, God. He made mankind, and in him we find our purpose. And then he gives the statement, verse 30. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day On which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. But Paul says, the great creator God who made mankind in his own image, invaded human history, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose victorious over death. So today is the day of your repentance. And and he 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 just lays it out there. And here's the response, three responses. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, which is outside of their paradigm, some mocked, others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So three responses, mock. You're a babbler. This makes no sense. This is outside of my worldview. They mocked. Others said, you know, this is interesting. I want to hear more. Thirdly, some believed. And all types are going to be here today. Some mocked. said, this, this, this can't be true. In the 1940s, there was a man named Rudolf Blumann who was a New Testament teacher. And Rudolf Blumann said, you know, it, it's impossible for modern man to believe the Bible. So he, he took... The Bible, and he took away the miracles to make it palatable. And this is what Bouman said. He said, it is impossible, this is in the 1940s, to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medicine and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. That's in the early, late 40s. Uh, uh, what, what would he say today? I mean, I mean, there there is a supernatural world out there. I, I remember as a young 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 lad, young lad, the world was astir in 1967. 1967, there was a surgical team of 30 people in South Africa, led by a guy named Christian Barnard, that was involved in the first human to human heart transplant. 1967 unbelievable. Today, there are something like 2,500 human heart transplants in America alone every year. Think about that. Two years later, July, 17th 1969, I'm sitting with my granddad watching a little black and white TV with lines across it as a guy named Neil Armstrong comes down from a spacecraft and lands on the moon. And he says, one small step for man, one what? Giant leap for mankind. We're on the moon. My granddad looked at me and said, son, don't believe it. That's taking place in Arizona so the government can tax us more. I swear, that's what he said. I went, oh, really? Wow. I think of all the advancements, but still it doesn't take away from the glory and the majesty and the supernatural of the resurrection. So, so Buchmann tried to get rid of the miracles. The first one he did away with what? The resurrection. One of the most significant books I've read recently is this book given by a good friend from Virginia, your daddy. It's called A Change of Heart by Tom Oden. Tom Oden died just a couple of years ago. He taught at Drew University in New Jersey for 33 years, uh, was from Altus, Oklahoma, went to University of Oklahoma, went to graduate school in Southern Methodist, and then he went to Yale and got another advanced degree in his Ph.D. in New Testament. Uh, Tom Odin went to uh, Europe and studied under Rudolf Buchmann. He did a dissertation on Rudolf Buchmann, was a scholar. He, says, he said this, he said, I loved heresy. I loved utopian fads. I loved revolutionary illusions. I loved anything that spoke against what I'd been taught. He said, I would go to church as a Methodist. I would go to church, and I would quote the Apostles' Creed, but inside my heart, I'd say, I don't believe these things. I don't believe these things. I did double speak. And he said, he said, I went through this Ph.D. program. I was published, and then I went to Drew University, and I met a young man, or a man named Will Herberg, who, who was a Russian Jew, and this Russian Jew had gone through Marxism and come out of Marxism and they developed a friendship and so he and his and Thomas Oden's wife and this young this other professor would meet every other week for lunch and he said one day we were having lunch together on our bi-weekly schedule and suddenly my endearing but very bold Jewish friend leaned into my face and told me That I was densely ignorant of my Christian heritage. And he simply could not permit me to throw my life away in trivialities. Holding one finger up, he looked straight at me with fury in his eyes and he said, You will remain theologically uneducated until you study carefully the great minds of your faith. Athanasius, Aquinas, Augustine. In his usual gruff voice and brusque speech, he told me that I had not yet met the great minds of my own religious tradition, and I was building my life upon nothing but fluff. In an instant of recognition, I knew he was right. I knew he had said that because he cared deeply about me. His words burned into my conscience. That was the opening bell that led to a bruising personal dialogue about my own self-deception, my mockery. All of its implications were not realized instantly, but my reversal began then and there on that very day at that very moment. And then he says this. I did a 180-degree change of heart and course. I plunged into reading great history, great theology, and I became a believer. This is what he says. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead turned everything upside down for me. And that came to me on the basis of really historical reasoning about the evidences of the resurrection. And I think it took me a long time to find my way back to a recognition that the beginning of Christian conversion is the incarnation of Christ and the resurrection, God's coming in the flesh, and God's truly rising to forgive our sins and taking our place upon the cross. So I just ask you, what do you think about the resurrection of Jesus? Have you dealt with the empty tomb? Uh, are you someone who maybe right now you're mocking in your heart? But God is in business changing us from mockers to believers. The next group are those people who said, we want to hear more. We want to hear more. But then the third group, there, there comes a, they believe there comes a point in your life where you cross the line. From unbelief and questions to belief, where you, you, you the Holy Spirit works in your heart, and you go from unbelief to belief, and among those were Dionysius and Damaris. I don't know how; it's a mystery. But you look to the cross and you say, "Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and rose victorious over death as a sign and a seal that He was God in the flesh." I believe. You go from unbelief to belief. My prayers that people would come into this service and the one in our worship center and, 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 and passed from unbelief to belief coming maybe mocking questions, no I really believe Jesus rose from the dead with a real body and ascended into heaven with a real body, the 500 men and all the apostles saw him I believe it's not some type of epic or, 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 or fable, it's truth and because he rose victorious over death We, too, will rise victorious over death. Some believed. Some trusted. We're going to close in the sanctuary by singing the Hallyu Chorus and in the worship center, they're going to sing the song, Hallelujah, but it's a praise to the Lord. And I tell the story fairly frequently, but because it means so much to me. So, spring of my freshman year as a Citadel cadet, I passed from unbelief to belief. I had a friend that shared the gospel with me and went to a series of meetings. And I remember the cross made sense. I said, Jesus died on the cross as my substitute. The, 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 the judgment I should receive was placed on him. It, the, gospel, the gospel clicked. And I, I'd been raised going to a small church, and we had a small choir. It wasn't a very good choir. Kind of a country church, you know, a lot of nasal singing. And, uh, and we... I uh, had occasionally, I, I asked me to sing in the choir, I've got a, I've got, I've got a choir voice, it's passable, it's that's, that's a choir voice. And so I used to sing in the choir occasionally and enjoyed that, all 13 or 14 or 15 of us. And so that Christmas the choir director, as a dear, dear woman, said to me, we're going to sing on the Sunday before Christmas the Hallelujah Chorus. I want you to sing with us. Well, you know, our choir singing the Hallelujah Chorus was a stretch. I mean, a big stretch. But I remember, uh, she said, come, you know, when the right before we sing, just come up. And I, I did, you know. So I'd, I'd only been a believer in, in Jesus for about eight months. And that's in the Hallelujah Chorus before I started singing it, and I got to the place where it says "King of Kings and Lord of Lords," and I broke down weeping because I understood that Jesus was King. That died on the cross for my sins. I thought, you know, there's a difference between singing the Hallelujah chorus and experiencing the reality of the Hallelujah chorus. Uh, it, may God give us the grace to move from mocking or questions to belief and to sing with great joy of the goodness of Christ, Happy Easter.